afternoon, Bob. Well, good afternoon, Bill. This is September 2nd, episode 39 of the Bob and Bill podcast. Can't believe we're in September. I know, it's amazing. And Time we are flies. in the middle of our Young at Heart conference, uh -huh. and we've got lots of announcements at the end. We're going to give you a lot to do in these next couple days. <laughs> but today we're going to air a message that was preached here at America's Keswick during our 97th summer season. Our last speaker of our family weeks was Dr. Liam Gallagher, who is a teaching pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And it was, it was really cool to have him here, and he did a study in the book of Psalms. So let's give a watch to this wonderful exposition from Dr. Liam Gallagher. It's always, uh, it's always risky applauding at the beginning. You may want to just hold that and make the decision later on once, once you get to, to know me. Um, I need to explain the accent, first of all. Uh, I'm not from England. Uh, that's about the most racist thing you could say to a Scotsman. Uh, the, uh, we, don't, we don't really hold the English in great regard. Uh, they've plundered us, looted us, burned our trees down, exported us to weird and wonderful places like the Carolinas, uh, and uh, done all kinds of things to us. We have no love whatsoever for the English. Uh, we used to, when we when we say we come from Scotland, very often I, I say to people, Scotland is a very small country with a large peninsula to the south. That's where the English are. Scotland's a beautiful country. If it wasn't for the rain, it would be a great place to stay. Uh, that's why so many Scottish people were either brought to America uh, on the prison boats or or escaped here in the end. I, I became an American citizen, my wife and I, in February, and the lockdown started in March. So, as far as I know, there's no connection between us becoming citizens and, and the lockdown. So, you do, I'm just giving you a chance to get used to the accent. This is how English should be spoken. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, although I'm working on my uh, West Philly accent at the moment. Well, I'm going to speak over these nights on a theme, I think, that should be at the forefront of our minds in these days. I'm going to read, first of all, from Psalm 90, which has been described by somebody as the most sublime piece of human composition of a psalm or a hymn or a song ever in the history of the world. I don't know if you'll agree with that by the time I've dissected it and chewed it up and spat it out to you. Uh, it's written by Moses. You can see that in the title it's given. It's a, a prayer of uh, a psalm of Moses, the man of God, which that gives us a lot of kudos. But I want to read the opening words of this psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I said it's written by Moses. Let's get the background in first of all. He's described here as a man of God. That expression, a man of God, is used in the Bible about the prophets. And Moses, of course, is the number one prophet in the Old Testament. It means that he's a minister of the Word of God. He handles the Word of God. He teaches the Word of God. He wrote this song in the desert. 
He wrote after he had led uh, his people who'd been slaves in, in Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt, and he brought them into the desert, you'll remember, and, uh, and they had rebelled against God, and for 40 years they were wandering around the desert. So he writes this song against the background of being forever and ever and ever rotating around the desert of Sinai year after year after year after year now for nearly 40 years. He's been living with rebellious people. The whole generation, the whole generation that left Egypt have died in the desert and been buried. Everything has, uh, that could go wrong has gone wrong. Now, the amazing thing about the, the wilderness wanderings in Scripture is that when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament points us back to Israel in the desert, and it uses Israel in the desert as a picture of the pilgrimage of the church in the world. Now, I was thinking about this. Why does the New Testament pick Israel in the desert as a picture of the church in the world. Well, I get the idea of moving towards the promised land. Many of the songs that were written by, uh, by uh, the slaves were about getting to the banks of the Jordan and crossing over into the promised land. They had actually learned good biblical theology somewhere because that is precisely the way it's described in Scripture. We're moving through the desert of this life and we're heading towards the Jordan and getting over into the promised land in the presence of God. That's, that's the Bible narrative. But then I asked myself, well, in the desert, Israel was disobedient. In the desert, Israel complained to God. In the desert, Israel murmured and complained about Moses, the man of God. Then I became a pastor, and I realized that that is, in fact, what the church does while it's in the desert on pilgrimage towards the promised land. It moans and murmurs and complains about the pastor. Now, I know that you don't do that about your pastor. And, uh, and I'm not saying anything about anybody in the church I'm in now ever saying that because I wouldn't want them to hear that I even suggested that. But uh, Israel in the wilderness is on the journey to the promised land. And this is the context then in which uh, Moses writes this song. Now I want you, if you're looking at it, to notice that he begins with a confession of faith. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You can think about those words in relation to those people who have left Egypt, they're in the desert, the first generation of them have died. They're rotating year after year after year in the desert. God's providing for them. He's giving them manna in the morning. They're making the manna bread and whatever else you do with manna. And uh, they're, they've been looking after themselves. God's been looking after them in the desert. Moses makes this confession of faith. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You can only say that if you're a believer. You can only say that if you have a relationship with God. You can only say that if you have a conviction in your heart that the Lord God is your God. It's a prayer of faith. And it's a prayer that is written out of the conviction that God is the ultimate home of His people. 
When you read that little expression, you have been our dwelling place, you're saying of God that God is your home. God is your home. Throughout the long history of the world, from the beginning of time, God's people have proved him to be their true home. You take the special relevance uh, of Moses' time as the Israels are homeless wanderers. There's a sense in which they're wandering and uh, is probably the background to the fact that as you read down this psalm, he talks a lot about the rootlessness and aimlessness and vacuousness emptiness of human life beneath the sun. This idea of, of uh, the difference between God and human life, between what it is to be at home with God and what it is to live your life beneath the sun. We find this in Moses' blessing to Israel. The eternal God is your dwelling place. So this psalm is a meditation on what it means to have God as your home. This personal prayer in Psalm 71 uses the same words, Be my strong dwelling place, which I may, to which I may continually resort. Be my dwelling place, to which I may continually resort. Now, looking at the Bible story, as you watch the story of the journeyings of Abraham and the wanderings of Israel and the pilgrimage of the church, the people of God have confessed this over and over again, that they dwell in God and God dwells in them. Jesus taught us this in John chapter 17, I in them, you in me, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I in them, you in me, them finding their home in us. Jesus says, us finding our home in them. So God himself then is our place to stay, our true home, our perpetual home, which will last as long as God lasts. You have been our dwelling place through all generations. He can, uh, he ever watches the little ship of the church Isaiah uses this picture of the church as a ship being buffeted and tossed here and there in the storm of life. God is able to watch over the little ship of the church as it navigates its way through the choppy waters of, of life, as it, it gets too attached to this power block in the world when it shouldn't, when it in this hand gets too involved in things that are shady on the other, when, it, when it's too devoted to money rather than to spirituality, when it, when it becomes part of the problem rather than part of the solution, when it's advocating slavery instead of advocating slavery's uh, end, when it's, when it's so compromised in its sin and when it's serving God well, when it's reaching the world and when it's narrowed in in itself. The church in all of its failure, all of its weakness, all of its shame, God has been our dwelling place in all generations. That's the way. That's the way it works. We find that God is, is strong to protect us, willing to pardon us, gracious to pity us, able to deliver us. And He is this 
to the whole communion of the saints in all generations. In all generations. We come tonight, and as we come to the Word of God this evening, understand this, that we are coming with all the generations of Christian believers that have come before us. We are gathered before the throne of God. God lives in eternity. And in eternity, all the saints are all at one and home. And uh, the world is over and, and the new creation has is, is already happened. And, and we're in the presence of God and they're enjoying God. We're there enjoying God. Even as we come here at this stage in our earthly pilgrimage, when we come to God in worship, when we come into the presence of the eternal, there is no passage of time. We are in the eternal presence of God where the problems are resolved. Justice has been done. The redeemed are all home, they're all transformed, they're all like Jesus, and they're all sharing Jesus' throne in glory. That's what it means to be able to say, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And when it says that the Lord has been our dwelling place. Understand that when you read the Old Testament and you see the word God or you see the word Lord, you're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's applying to the whole Trinity. The Trinity hasn't been kind of explained to us yet. That means when you look at the Old Testament, everything it tells you about the Lord or God, it's telling you about the Holy Trinity, which means it's telling you about the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you have been my dwelling place throughout all generations. Holy Spirit, you have been my dwelling place throughout all generations. Holy Father, you have been my dwelling place in all generations. And then he puts it in its context. He goes on to ground uh, his belief in this, that God has always been our home on the eternity of God. See how he puts it? Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He grounds the faithfulness of God. He grounds the fact that God has been our home and has been home to all of His people in all the circumstances of their lives, however harsh and bitter they have been. They have found their home in God through all generations. He grounds that principle in the eternity of God. He's going to speak as this uh, psalm proceeds, he's going to speak about the fragility and the brevity of human life and existence. Change and decay in all around I see. We look at the disintegration of the world and the way in which we ourselves are disintegrating. Uh, I had a phone call the other day with my cousin Nancy and I hadn't seen Nancy for a long time. She hasn't seen me for a long time, but we, we stay in touch from time to time by phone. And I was talking to her and so on. And we're talking about things that had happened when we were younger, when we were teenagers, and we used to hang out together, Nancy and I. And, uh, and uh, in talking about that, she, she introduced this topic, which was on... I was, I was sorry that she introduced this topic. She said, I, I watched the live stream from your church the other day, and... And I was just thinking, you kept your youthful looks longer than most of us did. 
But they've gone now, Liam. They've gone. Well, it's just as well she was 3,000 miles away in Britain. Let me just tell you that right now. I did not want to hear that. I know it's true, but I didn't want Nancy telling me that. Uh, but this is the reality. is a change and decay in all around we see. And the Bible always, when it talks about the fragility and brevity of human life, wants to talk about the eternity of God. He is the immortal God, it says. He is the eternal God, Romans 16. He is the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Who he is, uh, him who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So I just want to ask a question this evening, and that is, what do we mean when we talk about God being eternal? See, we are in a mortality crisis right now. Whether it was watching George Floyd die before our eyes on television, or whether it's the nightly recap of the numbers of people who've died of COVID, or the numbers that are dying in our slaughterhouses called Planned Parenthood, or the numbers who are dying in streets, in street violence, we're lying, we have a mortality crisis here. Actually, we always have. Because the statistics on death are stable every year. One out of one people dies. So death is not something new. It's a reality that we face all the time. Some deaths are horrific. Some deaths should not have happened. They happen unjustly. But death is a reality in our in our life today. So what do we mean by the eternity of God? Three things and then we're done for the night. In God there is no beginning. In God there is no beginning. Look at how it's put here. Moses begins by describing God's relationship to creation. Now what do I mean by creation? I mean everything that exists. Everything that you and I know that exists. The universe, in its smallest sense and in its largest sense. Here's how he puts it, before the mountains were brought forth. He's calling our minds to the ancient rocks and mountains, the very stuff of existence, that, that, that which is unmoved and unmovable, those bodies of rock that soar through space. We, we might imagine that some of those existed before the earth and the world did, or before it was formed, shaped, as it were, as you read in Genesis chapter 1. So he, he says, before anything was formed, before anything was brought forth, before anything existed, as we understand existence, before any of that happened... God was before it. The Lord, who is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the God who is said to inhabit eternity, the whole universe is an effect of his will put to work. 
The universe is an effect of his will put to work. Now we struggle mentally to comprehend what the scientists tell us about the vast distances of space. We struggle to get our heads around light years, to go from A to B in light years. Happens in science fiction, but it it beggars description, uh, and we can't get our heads around that. But the universe had a beginning. The universe came into existence. And before the universe came into existence, from everlasting to everlasting, God was God. In the beginning, God created, the Bible begins. He uses His eternal power and Godhead to do it, as Paul says in Romans 1. Just as God cannot be contained, just because God cannot be bounded by any kind of barrier, because He is immense and fills everything everywhere at all times and way beyond the universe, God exists in all His fullness everywhere and at every point that we can imagine. So God is not limited by any time. Not only is His immensity mean that He is everywhere, but His eternity means that He is always. He is always. And God alone is eternal. You, O Lord, from eternity to eternity, Isaiah says, you are God. He says to us that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. God alone is the very first being. He is the fountain of all being. From Him, everything that exists derives its existence. Our existence, moment by moment, day by day, nanosecond by nanosecond. Get this. Every atom, every infinite little part of your existence at this very moment, every neuron that's sparking back and forth, sparking back and forth in your brain right now to help you either not to listen or to listen to what I'm saying, is being maintained, sustained in existence by God. It has to be. Quarks, supernovas, Everything that is in the universe has to have the 100% attention of God to continue to exist. Can you understand that? I can't understand that. But that is precisely what the Bible teaches. His eternal power and Godhead. He's everywhere and He's sustaining everything that He created. He's the first being, and God's eternity is, is nothing but His duration, and His duration is nothing but His existence, and His existence is nothing more than what He is. That's what God meant when God said to Moses, 
when he was naming himself to Moses, I am. You want to, you want to tell them who, who sent you? Tell them, he who is sent me. He who is. He who is what? No, he who is. He who just exists of himself, in himself, by himself, always. Everything else exists because he made it exist. Everything else exists because he gave it existence. He is the one who is. And in him, we live and move and have our existence. God had no beginning. That's one of the wonderful things of Scripture. And when I say, I said earlier that when we say God had no beginning, we're thinking about the Son and the Spirit as well as the Father here. In Isaiah 9, have you ever wondered at Christmas time when they're reading those verses about Jesus being the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace? Have you ever wondered, what does it mean by Jesus being called the everlasting Father? Jesus was never called the everlasting Father. What does he mean by that? Has Isaiah got that bit wrong? No. Isaiah didn't get that bit wrong because the Holy Spirit told Isaiah what to say. He didn't get it wrong. Never gets it wrong. Jesus is the everlasting Father because what did he say to people? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You say you want to see the Father? Look at me and you've seen the Father. You can't separate the members of the Trinity. There's only one God, one entity and existence called God. He's not divided into parts. When we talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not talking about three people who've gone on a vacation together in heaven. No, no, no. We're talking about the same God. We're talking about the Father who is the fountain of the Godhead. We're talking about the Son who is, is God from God. We're talking about the Holy Spirit who is God from the Father and the Son and back to the Father and the Son, one being. That's what we're talking about. And in the fullness of time when God took on human nature, the one who became the man Christ Jesus is the one who's being talked about in Micah when it says his goings forth were from of old, from everlasting. It's the one who's being talked about in Proverbs 8 that he was from everlasting before the beginning of the earth. It's the one John is referring to when he says he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And the Holy Spirit is present there too because he is called the eternal Spirit. The undivided Godhead had no beginning. So nothing catches him by surprise. My existence depends on his existence. Your existence depends on his keeping you in existence. That has all kinds of practical ramifications for my life. But here's the other thing. In God, there's no beginning. In God's, there's no end. Jesus told someone once that God has life in himself. 
The Father has life in himself. Then Jesus said, And the Father has given to the Son to have life in himself. Standalone life in himself. The Holy Spirit has, is the Spirit of life. And as God, he lives forever. The earth and the heavens will perish, but you will remain. You are the same. Your years have no end. And what's true of the Father is true of the Son, is true of the Spirit, is true of God. And one reason that God, God's life does not end is because God is immaterial. He's not made up of stuff. He's invisible. He's spirit. We can't imagine God because anything we would imagine would be wrong because we can only imagine like solid objects. That's all we can imagine. Because we are material. We are bound in time. We are bound to material things. Our ideas are frankly just thinking about God in, with our ideas is above our pay grade. By infinity. God is, has life in himself because he, his life has no end. Uh, and that means that there's no end to his love for you. That means there's no end to his power for you. That means there's no end to his promises that he's made to you. That means whatever your end is, he will be with you at that end. Because his life never ends. And the wonderful thing is, of course, that what he gives to us in Jesus is he gives us something of himself. When Jesus says that the essence of knowing the Father and knowing the Son is that we have the gift of eternal life, just talking about eternal life is talking about the life of God. Our destiny, brothers and sisters, we've already begun this, by the way, because our souls have eternal life. Our bodies don't have it yet. They're going to get it on the day of resurrection, but already our spirits have eternal life. We have already got the first down payment of the full thing when Jesus comes again. We are sharing something of God. We're going to be like God. Our eternity is derived, of course. It's gifted to us. It's, it's ours because God has given it to us freely because we trusted in Jesus. But it is the life of God in eternity that we are going to share, just as Jesus does. That's why, actually, the early Christians, in, in, uh, especially in North Africa, where Christianity was strongest in the first centuries, with men like Augustine and Athanasius and, and others, when, when they, they talked about what it meant to become a Christian, they talked about what it meant to be when you were in the presence of God, and they said, we will be divinized, or we will be glorified, is the language of the New Testament, isn't it? Glorified. That's a dodgy word, because God doesn't give his glory to anybody else but he's going to give his glory to you. You're going to be glorified, which means you're going to become like God. When we see Jesus as he is, we're going to be what? We're going to be like him. 
like him. We're going to share something of God. One of the things we're going to share is the eternal life of God. And that life is no end. So in God there is no end, and in God there is no change. No change. We humans live with change. Our lives are lived in a succession of seconds and minutes and hours and days and years and decades. As creatures, we are locked into the space-time continuum. The existence of creatures is successive by, by, by the way we were made, but the being of God is permanent. It remains entire. It never lessens or gains. It's perfect, unchanged, to an infinite, eternal duration. God does not alter. Now, there is a modern error, I have to say this in some circles, among evangelical people, that like to say that God is in time and that God moves and responds and acts in time responding all the time to what's going on in the church and the world, and he's doing that, uh, and he's, he's kind of operating within time. But when the Bible calls God eternal, it's telling you that God is timelessly eternal. He is not locked into time. We are. Being locked into time is what it is to be a creature. Being outside of time is what it means to be the Creator. And frankly, if we're going to have a God, we don't want God who's one of us. Well, there's a sense in which God is one of us. When he took on our human nature, when Jesus came, well, what if God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home? The reality is God became one of us. The Lord Jesus took on a human nature and a human soul and a human mind and a human will, a human body, and he lived a human life but as God, he did not change. As God, he did not suffer. As God, he did not die. In his humanity, he suffered. In his humanity, he died. In his humanity, he grew in wisdom and stature. So he knows by his union with our human nature what we're going through. But as God, he doesn't change. He doesn't change. He is timelessly eternal. So that means that God is not in the process of becoming something else. Augustine, one of the early African fathers, says, In the eternal, nothing is, trans is transient, but the whole is present to God. Now, I, I get, try to get this. In eternity, everything that exists through all its time of existence is present to God's sight. You can imagine this. He sees the whole of existence, however long it's going to be. The universe, us, all present to him at 
the same moment. I, I say moment. I shouldn't say moment because there's no time with God. He sees everything. So right now to God, the new heavens and the new earth. And a billion years from now when we're playing, paddling in Keswick, in resurrected bodies, it's all present to God. That's an important thing. It's God's now. Everything is now to God, but not to us. We're still here. We're still trying to find our way home, struggling to find our way to the new Jerusalem. But God is timeless, and God is our God. Well, as creatures then, we're in a, we're in a constant flux. Uh, we acquire things or we lose things every day. Uh, one, one old writer put it like this. He uses the illustration of the difference between the ocean and a river. A river over time will change course. Or a river over time will sometimes have more density than at other times after the rain, for example. The ocean, however, remains always the same. Same body of water, year after year after year. Of course, any illustration of eternity is always a always has its weaknesses, but it gives you an idea. We, we are in the course of change. God never changes. He's an unbounded sea of being. And all that we say about that, we say about Christ. About Jesus, it is said, you are the same. About Jesus, it is said, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was Jesus who said of himself, Before Abraham was, I am. Using the name that God had given to Moses. I am. He who is. Who, he who is. He who is. Do you grieve at injustice in the world? We weep over injustice wherever we see it, or we should. Get the bigger picture. To God right now, it's all resolved. And from our perspective here, it will be resolved. It will be resolved. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of rectification coming. There's a day in which everything will be dealt with thoroughly and completely and to our taste. And God will come to you as an individual and he will wipe every tear. Every tear and the cause of that tear. He will take it away. He will wipe it away. He will remove it forever. That's our destiny, isn't it? The destiny of the children of God. This God knows the end from the beginning. This is the best news it's the best news because God's covenant of salvation to bring you to eternal life was made before the foundation of the world. Your salvation was secured before the foundation of the world. Your name was written on his heart and in his book before the foundation of the world. The promises have come to us in the coming of Jesus. Those promises were made in time. God will keep his promise. Why? Because he doesn't change. It doesn't change. 
When we discover that God loves you with an everlasting love, it's telling you God's love will not change. It will never diminish. God's love will not change. Do you trust that for yourself? Do you trust that his purposes for you will never change? It's because God is everlasting and because he is our everlasting father and because we now have eternal life that we can say, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh, this body may die, but I won't die. The person will not die. And one day that body will be raised from the dead, transformed, and made suited to live for billions and billions and billions of years, worlds without end. That's the best news. The best news is, is capsulated in the little phrase in Hebrews where it talks about the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Perfect in the presence of God. The worst news is that a thousand years in God's sight is like yesterday. Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else, and he warns people that there is a wrath to come and that our God is a consuming fire. The best news, the worst news, the good news is that we believe in the ever-living ever and everlasting God because God himself has come to demonstrate what that looks like from a human perspective. What does it look like from a human perspective to be the ever-living one? It means that one should come among us, take our, put on our skin, or the skin of a Jewish man in the Middle East, walk in our steps, feel the trials we feel, feel angry at death, weep for those who are weeping. Take the punishment that wasn't his due, but our due. Be crucified, dead, and buried. And then be raised from the dead. Transformed. Exalted. Glorified sitting on the throne of God in heaven. That's what it looks like to be the ever-living one from a human perspective. And you and I are destined to follow him there and to share that glory with him. The one who has re resurrected life is the one who says, so that whoever believes in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. Father, thank you that you've given to us this living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We praise you for it. And ask that that living hope, Lord, would sustain us in all the trials and troubles of life, we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.
All right, Bob, it's Wednesday, and uh, lots of things happening in the next couple days. So tonight at 7 o'clock, we have TNT. That's correct. With our Young at Heart friends. Yes. Tomorrow at 10 o'clock is our hymn sing. First, first hymn sing of the fall. First hymn sing. And I think we're doing favorites. Is that correct? We're doing their favorites, so you can watch online. Unfortunately, you can't come on Thursday because we're sold out. But we have room on Friday at 10 o'clock, and for $10, you get the hymn sing, sing your favorites, and a wonderful box lunch. Oh, that's excellent. So there's lots for you to do, and I want to encourage you to join us tomorrow at 1.30 for Worship Live on Facebook and YouTube. God bless.